Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. USA, USA. American exceptionalism, the controversial idea that the United States is somehow unique among nations, is a concept that at one time was almost universally accepted, by Americans at least. As a historian, Professor Andrew Lang asks some historical questions about this notion. When did it start? And how did both sides in the Civil War and Reconstruction use it to justify their actions before, during, after the war? His answers are in the new book, A Contest of Civilizations, Exposing the Crisis of American Exceptionalism. We'll talk with Andrew Lang tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building, B-Wing, no, A-Wing this week, A-Wing, A320, here on the campus of East Carolina University. But as is almost always the case, not speaking for ECU, not representing anyone but myself, and our guest tonight likewise speaks only for himself. Last week, for maybe the first time in 20 years of doing this show, I forgot the legal disclaimer so I've been waiting all week for ECU's lawyers to descend upon the Brewster building and uh, seize my computer and otherwise uh, chastise me for giving the appearance that this show is somehow sanctioned by East Carolina University. But it turns out no one at ECU has listened, so I, I got away with it that time and then probably will continue to do so for another 20 years if desired. Uh, well, uh, the other thing I've been doing over the past week is still basking in the glow of my alma mater's national championship uh, in college football. But as that fades into the past, uh, 
what has football done for me lately? I've been looking for a new bandwagon to jump on, and I found one in the Detroit Lions NFL football team. They are my original sports love. My dad took me to several Lions games in 1966, for which I have long since forgiven him. Uh, but it did sort of condemn me to a lifetime of enduring football futility. I had a Lions poster on my wall when I was a kid, and and the latent fandom has never been too far below the surface ever since. Two years ago, when uh, the Lions were 0-10, and then they won a game, I I sang along with G-Mac Cash's rap, The Lions Won a Game, uh, a great novelty song, uh, because it was such a rare occurrence. But uh, now they are division champs, and they've won a playoff game for the first time in several decades. So I'm I'm all agog and ready for that. I hope I didn't jinx anything by sharing that with you. In the Civil War world, looking at the uh, uh, looking by email today, saw a piece from the Lincoln Presidential Foundation announcing that John Meacham, who you've heard on this show, uh, will receive the 2024 Lincoln Leadership Prize. The uh, uh, John's book was excellent. We had an interesting conversation about it. Uh, I was always interested to see what the Lincoln uh, Presidential Foundation will do next because it was originally formed to support the Lincoln Presidential Library in Springfield and the foundation or the the museum and its benefactor foundation parted ways a year or two ago and I'm not quite sure what what happens next. They're still giving out this award and I'm glad it's going to someone who writes books as opposed to an astronaut or a head of state. I mean, those are fine people too, but the Lincoln Award being to a, going to a Lincoln author seems like a more reasonable thing. Anyway, uh, one of these days we'll have to have uh, somebody from the foundation join us on the show. We can, we can learn about that sordid story. In the meantime, you can find out who will actually be next on the show by going to impedimentsofwar.org on the World Wide Web. There, Mark Gaffney, the webmaster, keeps us informed on who the next guest will be. He posts the show that was on last week and the uh, 600 weeks before that and and keeps everything up to date there. You can also buy T-shirts there to uh, endorse your – to display your support in Civil War Talk Radio. Several people did that, uh, bought them over the holiday. Presumably there were some faces – a glow with delight uh, when they opened packages containing gifts of Civil War Talk Radio t-shirts. While you're there, you can also donate to the show, to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund. Uh, listener Rick Mason donated recently, and he wrote the following. Your recent ramping up of guilt-inspiring rhetoric has finally worn me down, but I still win. $25 for 622 episodes equals $0.04 cents per episode. Well, I've not done the math. I trust that Rick is right about that. But I will point out that you too can join Rick in in putting one over on me uh, by sending $25 and laughing at the spectacle of contributing only four cents per episode. What uh, The joke is surely on me uh, when you do that. Uh, so, so go ahead and indulge yourself. 
Next week, we'll be talking with Matthew Christopher Hulbert. Uh, Matt has been on the show before. His new book is called Oracle of Lost Causes, John Newman Edwards and His Never-Ending Civil War. I'm looking forward to finding out who John Newman Edwards was uh, over the week ahead and talking about it with you next week. At the end of January 2024, the month we're in right now, Jonathan D. Sarna will be here, uh, co-editor of Jews and the Civil War, a reader, along with other works on related topics. On the 7th of February, uh, Fergus M. Bordewitt returns to the show with his book about U.S. Grant and the battle to save Reconstruction. It's called Clan War. And we'll have old friend of the show. Uh, maybe uh, he'll be setting a record for most appearances. Harold Holzer on the 14th of February brought forth on this continent Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration is his new book. And we'll finish up the month of February with two more interesting topics. Uh, Scott Hippensteel, who teaches here in North Carolina, uh, has written several books on related topics. The one we'll be discussing is called Sand, Science, and the Civil War, Sedimentary Geology and Combat. Sedimentary Geology and Combat. That's the correct accent. Uh, we'll learn how to say the word and what it possibly has to do with the Civil War when Scott is here. And our last show of the month will be uh, a newcomer uh, to the program, Cecily Zander. Professor Zander has a book that's not even out yet, but will be soon. The Army Under Fire, The Politics of Anti-Militarism in the Civil War Era. So a lot's coming up, uh, but tonight we are talking with Professor Andrew Lang. He's an associate professor of history at Mississippi State University. Uh, he's won the Tom Watson Brown Book Award in 2018. Uh, for an earlier book called In the Wake of War, Military Occupation, Emancipation, and Civil War America. And tonight we'll be talking about his uh, his new book, A Contest of Civilizations, Exposing the Crisis of American Exceptionalism. Uh, Andy, are you there? I am here, Jerry. It's great to be with you. Well, good to have you here. Uh, we, we got to chat last summer at the Civil War Institute in Gettysburg and, and set this up, and I'm glad it's here. Let me start with a question. Uh, you work at Mississippi State. How do you stand at the cowbells? <laughs> well, um, I, I don't, uh, as, it, as it turns out. My, my wife and I went to several football games our first semester here. We've been here for 10 years. Absolutely love it here. Have a, have a great life. Uh, but I have I've only been to one football game since. I, I much prefer watching from from the comfort of my own home, um, having never been acculturated to the clanging of sixty five thousand cowbells. Um, but such as it is, they're 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 freaking loud. I spoke once I think when the the grant papers were being transferred there um, as part of that weekend, and I was given a, a cowbell as a souvenir. Uh, it. It made its way into the uh, yard sale pile. I'm afraid <laughs> uh, it, it, that thing that thing was really loud. Uh, well, let me ask another. It, it, I have to ask another question. This one more academic. Um, it, is the blurb on the website up to date that you are uh, an associate professor? Uh, because for our listeners who are not up on American academic ranks, you start as an assistant professor, move up to associate, and then full professor. Uh, with the Tom Watson Brown Book Award, and this 
at least second monograph out. Uh, surely you're you're you must be up for full pretty soon. Well, I I, I soon yes. Um, our our promotion and tenure requirements are are um, pretty pretty stringent. I, I would say um, for both uh, promotion to associate and then to full. Our department requires uh, a monograph and three peer-reviewed essays uh, for each promotion. And so in this case, I, I got the second book done first and I'm working on the essays on the back end, which is um, in kind of inverse order, I, I would I would say for most. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm working on these essays now that uh, I'm, I'm trying to foreshadow my next project. I, I figure we need one more book on on Lincoln. So that's what I'm that's what I'm working on now. And I'm using these essays. Um, to that end, to organize my thinking. Well, there, there's always room for another book on Lincoln. I, I certainly say that. But I'm that's that's a lot. Um, many departments require a book, some two books if they're maybe Ivy League, but uh, but a book and three peer-reviewed essays or articles. That's that's a hefty uh, requirement. Um, makes me glad I'm here at East Carolina uh, and, and not sharing. Uh, sharing life with you in Starkville. Um, let's talk about this book, uh, and this would apply to your previous book as well. You you write about the Civil War, but these are not drum and trumpet military histories. Uh, what have you always been a historian of ideas as opposed to events? You know, that's a really good question, and I'm I'm really pleased that you picked up on that in in both books. I, I to be perfectly frank, I, I think that they just happen to evolve that way. Um, I I now absolutely consider myself a historian of ideas uh, of sorts, um, but I am I am interested. I've always been interested in in why people think the way that they do, um, how they explain their world, how they explain their present. And that is what I have found fascinating um, in my academic research for, I don't know, the past 15 years. So in this book, you you write about American exceptionalism. Uh, I gave a 10-word definition. Uh, before we take our first break, uh, in a couple of minutes, what, the, what do you mean by American exceptionalism yeah, in the context this is- of this book? Absolutely, and I, I thought your I thought your definition at the outset was was spot on. And I'll I'll only add to this. Um, I'll, I'll preface by saying that this book is not in any way my attempt to validate or prove the existence of American exceptionalism, but rather to use the concept to um, explore how contemporaries in the nineteenth centuries themselves or nineteenth century themselves considered the United States, a unique, uh, in some cases, destined nation uh, among the nations of the world. Um, It's the idea that the uh, United States was the only, and and this actually is um, uh, factually accurate, the United States was the only federal republic in the world um, at the time, but more broadly, Americans imagined their nation standing as a republic of liberty amid the world's aristocracies, hierarchies, oligarchies, nobilities, monarchies, that allegedly, so so the idea goes, only in the United States can, can a free citizenry pursue happiness um, liberated from government coercion. Um, that's the idea. Uh, behind it. There's much more that we can discuss vis-a-vis the definition, but the book is principally about how this exceptionalist consensus uh, fractured among competing claims 
to exceptionalism, um, which I contend led to the sectional crisis and the Civil War. Well, it, it, when you said it fractured, then you made the point it fractures, but both halves cling to the idea that they represent what makes America exceptional, that they, they are the true heirs of, of the founders, which on its surface is baffling because they're fighting for such different notions of the country. But you found they, they both believed they were doing the same thing. I did, yeah. Um, by the time that we get to uh, the secession crisis, or really by the 1850s through the secession crisis, you start to see very distinct threads of exceptionalist discourse and commitment. On the one hand, uh, from the even the most moderate uh, of the anti-slavery coalition all the way to the most radical abolitionists, you hear something like this, that in the United States, the human individual and human dignity matters. And that in the United States, um, the natural rights of all humans are anchored at the core of the, of the nation's purpose. And slavery, of course, is a fundamental, if not moral threat to this. On the other hand, you have slaveholders who say, no, what makes the United States exceptional is that we're one of the only places left in the 19th century world that not only tolerates slavery, but sanctions it, proliferates it, expands it. And slaveholders cling to this idea that in the United States, uh, we can boast racial hierarchy, racial subordination in its best and purest form. And when the Lincoln uh, administration... Uh, go ahead. Uh, I'm just going to cut you off. That's such a remarkable claim. Uh, it takes a moment to digest. So yeah. we're going to take a short break. Yeah. Uh, we'll come back in, in, in just a minute uh, and talk more about these competing claims of American exceptionalism. We're talking tonight with Andrew F. Lang, author of A Contest of Civilizations, Exposing the Crisis of American Exceptionalism in the Civil War Era. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P. 
O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Andrew Lang, author of A Contest of Civilizations, Exposing the Crisis of American Exceptionalism in the Civil War Era. So, Andy, we established uh, in the first segment that both North and South see, see themselves as representing what makes America unique, exceptional in, in the 19th century world, uh, even though they're, they're fighting for very different things. And, and as we left off, you mentioned that, that Southerners, white Southerners imagined that slavery was not a contradiction to the American ideal, uh, but was actually central to it. Uh, and that, that, I guess, is the first question anyone asks when they hear the sort of the concept uh, at, at play here. How can that be? How, how, how could people read all men are created equal in the Declaration uh, and, and square the idea of America as a free republic where every person can raise themselves with human bondage? How did they do that? Yeah, no, it's, uh, that's a great, if not central question uh, to this to this whole uh, curiosity. So I, I would say this, you know, by the time we get to the 1850s, um, pro-slavery intellectuals take head on um, what you just asked in your question. Mm-hmm. You know, if you read um, the majority opinion in Roger Taney's uh, decision in the Dred Scott case, he just flat out says, that the words in the Declaration of Independence not only are wrong, but that the founders who wrote them never intended for people of color to be included in the phrase, all men are created equal. And so by, by, by the 1850s, you have people like Tawney, like Cal, John C. Calhoun, um, George Fitzhugh, dozens of others who are saying that liberty in the United States is fundamentally contingent upon human bondage, because a permanent laboring class, one particularly conditioned by race, allows the liberty, the proliferation, uh, the intellectual capacities of all white people uh, to flourish. Um, and so if, if white citizens have the sacred right to property, and property is the source of liberty, and only in the United States do those two go together, then slavery and the American um, regime works in tandem. Um, but it goes deeper than this. You have pro-slavery theorists um, take um, a woman by the name of Louisa McCord uh, in South Carolina. Um, she She's not unique in this, but she has tracked upon tracked saying that by the 1850s, we in the uh, white American South, we feed the world, we clothe the world, the world depends on us for our staple uh, crops, staple products, um, and that slavery is a fundamental necessity to, to progress, to modernity, uh, to civilization. That, as you were saying that, and as I was reading, I was thinking of Edmund Morgan, uh, American Slavery, American Freedom, which goes mm-hmm. back, I don't know, 50, 60 years now. Um, it, it is... Are you saying something different from what he was saying when he argued that that, that Southerners, white Southerners, said freedom was not antithetical to slavery, but built upon it? No, I'm I'm, I'm very much um, sympathetic to uh, 
to, to, to that great book. It's one of the first I read in grad school many years <laughs> ago, and it's always resonated with me. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm in no way qualified to say that this book is a uh, part two of Morgan's book. Um, but I, but I like to think, I, I, I like to think of my, myself that way in a, in, in, in some tiny, tiny fashion. I like to think of this, you know, chronologically as the, you know, you know, Morgan's book ends in what, 1800 or so it's been. Right. right. Read it. And I like to think of this book picking up where, where his left off, um, in that sense, because, you know, it, it really does come full circle. Um, when you read Alexander Stevens, notorious, um, infamous cornerstone address in, mm-hmm. in March 1861. He just come right comes right out and says that the Confederate nation is built upon the exact opposite ideas of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, and he says we are the first nation. These are his words. Mm-hmm. Words. The first nation in the history of the world predicated explicitly upon human bondage, racial distinctions, etc. It's a, it's a, it's an unabashed claim to exceptionalism and. And, you know, the the Confederates have no intention, or at least the Confederate founders have absolutely no intention, I believe, of sharing the North American continent equally with the United States. This is, in their own words, an imperial movement um, to, to conquer the whole landmass, um, overwhelm the United States, prove that the founding uh, vis-a-vis the Declaration and the Constitution were false, and rewrite history and implant a new form of American exceptionalism um, on the continent. Um, it's, it's no surprise to me why Lincoln uses that word continent in the Gettysburg Address when he is speaking about the stakes um, of this crisis. Now, a lot of scholars have argued that the, the Northern abolitionist claims about the existence of the, the, the slave power, capital S, capital P, this this inchoate conspiracy to spread slavery across North America uh, is an exaggeration, is, is part of the, 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 the conspiratorial or, or paranoid strand in American politics that is still with us today, obviously, uh, that there really is no such thing. But it sounds like you're saying that there very much was such a thing. Yeah, you know, I, I have struggled with this both in the research in, of, of, of this book in, in my teaching of the era. And it's, it's a great question. To what extent did politicians, both anti-slavery and abolitionism, genuinely believe that there was a conspiracy afoot? I'm not, I'm not sure if, if they did genuinely or not, but what I do know is that they based, especially the Republican Party, based its platform on the assumption that elite oligarchic slaveholders had somehow co-opted the levers of government power and have used the federal government to facilitate their own interests at the expense of the broad array of non-slaveholding Southerners and even white Northerners. Um, I mean, Lincoln makes this um, argument uh, rather explicitly in his uh, famous House Divided speech, uh, where you have um, members of the Democratic Party working in tandem behind closed doors to to hatch a scheme to spread slavery into the territories and then write Supreme Court decisions to to, to sanction it and then elect uh, James Buchanan to the presidency to bless uh, the nationalization of slavery. I don't know. It, I mean, as I'm talking, yeah, I, I think they believed it. Um, and I think that we have evidence of of this belief because when the Republicans are elected in 1860 and the first plank of their platform 
talks about um, the the raw literal logic of the Declaration of Independence. Well, what do seven slaveholding states do in response to this? Um, seems to me that the slaveholders, to one extent or another, believed what the Republicans themselves were saying, and so the rest is history. Let me step back uh, again to the language of, of the Declaration and the language of the, the founders generally. Uh, and now we've, we're talking about white Northerners, white Southerners. I'm going to switch your focus briefly to black Southerners uh, yeah. or, or black Americans in general. Did they – what was their view of – of these claims to American exceptionalism, it was something where they simply said the hypocrisy is too much. We have no use for this. Or did they attempt to turn it around and use it as a weapon? Yeah, I think, I think both, uh, to be sure. Um, the, the 19th century, um, black American community, obviously it, it, it goes without saying it's hardly monolithic. Um, and so you have um, a diverse range of voices on, on on how to deal with just flat out gross, at best, second class citizenship and at worst, 4.2 million people in bondage. So if you are uh, uh, among this group of Americans, what do you do? Well, I always like to turn to Frederick Douglass. Um, I, I don't think you can go wrong too many ways um, listening to Douglass. Um, and there's so much to find in his in his wonderful uh, "What to the Slave Is the Fourth of July" address um, in 1852, where he's speaking to a, a northern white audience of New York abolitionists who've gathered to commemorate uh, July 4th, and you can almost sense just how um, proud they must be to hear uh, before them a black man reiterating what they want to hear about how great their country is. Well, then Douglas starts speaking, and he turns the <laughs> exceptionalism right on its head. And he says, uh, effectively, I don't know what to tell you guys, but this country is unique, not for the reasons that you claim it's unique, but because it's the only nation that has the audacity to declare um, what Douglas believes to be objective, natural truth, that all humans are created equal, and then simultaneously um, create the world's by far largest slaveholding nation. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a masterclass. That speech is a masterclass in exceptionalist rhetoric done through the lens of, of black critique. But I, I make the point in the book that um, if there's any group of people who had um, an absolute reason to reject, rebel, um, and dispense with uh, the American political regime, it's it's black Americans. Um, but they didn't. What did they do? They they mobilized politically. They they had they had their own press. They they used the 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 means and mechanisms of American constitutionalism to uh, petition in in whatever limited means uh, were available to them during the Civil War. We have you know ten percent of the Union Army comprised of African American men, men whose families had been enslaved for generations by the very government that they are now fighting to defend. And why are they doing it? Because in their own words, um, and we have a great testimony from, from so many, um, this is the only nation um, that can protect all men, all women, um, and the natural rights um, of our progeny. So that gets us to the war. I want to talk about that, which uh, occupies a good uh, the middle portion of this book. Uh, the 
the war brings about uh, changes that are fundamental and astounding, as Lincoln says, starting with secession itself. The South claims to be the true heirs of the founders and doing what was, um, uh, you know, what what the founders wanted. Well, let me step back. You, you portray how fragile the republic is in in the first portion of the book. How Americans are keenly sensitive that they are the last best hope of Earth. That that republics everywhere else have failed. That that. Monarchies and you know, czars and chiefs dominate the rest of the world, uh, and the U.S. is bucking history in not also collapsing mm-hmm. as other republics and revolutions have done. So, given how fragile it is, how do white Southerners say, "Well, we'll save it. We'll tear it in two. Yeah, um, it, it's it's because in in their mind. Um, they 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 come to a, a point of belief that the physical nation is expendable, but what is not expendable is that which makes uh, or made the United States unique in the first place, and that is by 1860 the United States standing as one of three slaveholding societies left in the Western Hemisphere, um, and but with an anti-slavery uh, party controlling the White House. And the Congress, um, that that principle of racial hierarchy and human bondage has to be picked up and moved into a nation that is entirely sympathetic uh, to its preservation. And so the the Confederacy has every intention, as I said a moment ago, of overwhelming the United States, delegitimizing it, claiming that what is said in the Declaration is not true, that societies do have a right to political self-determination, and we, the Confederates, we're going to do it right. Political self-determination has failed across the world. There's been great backlash and monarchical repression to uh, self-determination movements. We're going to do it right, but we're also going to show that racial hierarchy and slavery, um, in contrast to the rest of the world that is experimenting with forms of free labor, it can work, and we're gonna we're gonna prove it. Um, the, well, but you you mentioned self determination. How then do white Northerners make this claim that if the country exists because of self determination, yeah. because of resistance to the British Empire, uh, how how do Northerners square the idea that we're going to force white Southerners back into the Republic? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Um, uh, mercifully, we have uh, you know Mr. Lincoln to turn to. Um, this is the question he had to answer, and 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 he answered it um, pretty well. And you know we're 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 hearing echoes of this in our in our in our current political discourse about the sanctity and legitimacy of elections, um, a political majorities rule, that peaceful transfers of power are essential um, to to democracy, um, that political minorities, no matter how. Um, upset they may be with an outcome, must acquiesce, as Lincoln said. Otherwise, self-government is illegitimate. Um, If secession is allowed to take place, if the rejection of a free, fair, open election um, is allowed to um, manifest, then it'll be very easy for the nobles, the monarchs of the world, to look and say, you see, we always told you that democracy would cave in on itself that it would eat itself, 
um, and thus we have to control the masses. There's so much at stake here. It's not just politics in the United States. It's about the very principle of free government itself. Um, Self-determination is one thing. Uh, Revolution is one thing. It is a natural right outlined in the Declaration of Independence, but only when there is no avenue of recourse open to a political minority. Um, And there were plenty of political uh, recourses left to white Southerners in the wake of 1860, but they chose uh, not to pursue those. The war that follows brings these uh, ideologies back into focus, and uh, we'll take another break in just a minute or so, but when we come back, I want to ask you about the uh, the conduct of the war. The the We move from the, the, the juice ad bellum, the, the right to go to war, to the juice in bello, uh, the, the the right uh, by which war is conducted, the, 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 the rights of belligerents and so on. Uh, so we'll talk about that. Uh, we're talking to our guest, Andrew F. Lang. He's the author of A Contest of Civilizations, Exposing the Crisis of American Exceptionalism in the Civil War Era. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Andrew Lang, author of A Contest of Civilizations, Exposing the Crisis of American Exceptionalism in the Civil War Era. We've been talking about how the two sides... North and South uh, go to war eventually over different visions of what the founders intended and what the United States ought to be. Uh, And those visions certainly inform the way the two sides conduct the war. Uh, Just for context, 
the the middle of the 19th century is very early in the era when people are talking about international laws of war. Uh, people are reading Vital and, and Henry Halleck. Uh, you get the Lieber Code during the war. You're, you're, you, the idea that war is just all's fair in love and war, do whatever you want, that's that's certainly not how the Civil War is conducted. Uh, is this because the two sides are trying to live up to some imagined ideal? Well, I think by the time of the war, it's it's less about living up to an imagined ideal than it is to establish some form of legitimacy um, to uphold the causes for which they're fighting. Let, let, let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we all know that um, President Lincoln rejected um, what he called the so-called Confederacy as a legitimate nation, or or even that the the Southern states had lawfully seceded. Um, he said instead that they um, are temporarily out of their practical proper relation with the Union. So that means that if these uh, folks, these these rebels, are not indeed members of a recognized nation, if they are not marching under a national flag and are thus insurrectionists and rebels, well, then they are ostensibly committing treason. And um, under the laws of war and even the United States Constitution, we know that those who commit treason against the United States um, can be subject to execution. Um, So does that mean that we see tens, hundreds of thousands then of white Southern bodies um, executed across the South? Does does that mean that the Confederate home front is arbitrarily uh, burned and pillaged and civilians are executed in mass? No, quite the opposite. (laughs) Reason for that is because it is simply imprudent and unlawful to wage a war in that manner. Waging a war in that manner violates the very exceptionalist claim that those who waged a war for union um, uh, claim to be fighting for. And so what a just war does, um, what the legal logic of a just war does, it is it at once establishes limits and avenues of expansion by which a belligerent can conduct a conflict to secure the purposes uh, for which they are fighting. And anything beyond that not only goes against law, but also endures the condemnation of the global community. I mean, the going back to Roman law, as you said, crim, those who rebel against the, the lawful power are criminals, are, are, are yeah. committing treason and can be punished accordingly. But instead of treating Confederates as as criminals, uh, for the most part, they are granted the status of belligerents, which is if you experience the same challenge explaining to students, they're not a separate country. Lincoln's not recognizing the South as a, a, a an independent nation, but is acknowledging they have the right uh, to fight and not be punished for it. it. It's a very odd middle ground. It is, and it's it's admittedly paradoxical. Um, but again, it, it, it speaks to uh, a broader ethos of um, democratic and legal restraint um, for, for a nation that professes to be somehow unique in the world. There has to be some kind of, of commitment uh, to that ideal. And I, and I think that that's I think that's what's taking place here. Um, there, there's multiple times at, uh, uh, at which we know 
that European belligerents almost intervene on the basis that the that the war is escalating uh, to unacceptably violent ends. And that's that's one of the reasons for their potential mediation. And so there there has to be a limit uh, beyond which um, a belligerent uh, cannot go. It's I mean, if you think about our modern time, um, the gross violation of sovereignty and the gross violation of um, uh, law, uh, national law or in international law in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it's the same thing. Um, Russia is flagrantly violating the rules of war. Um, the United States chose to be bound in the 1860s, at least to some kind of adherence to the rules of war. And likewise, the Confederacy also limits itself. You point out that, uh, you know, a guerrilla war is, is the traditional uh, and possibly most effective, if, if slowest and most painful way for uh a, a population to establish self-determination, wait for the oppressor to get tired and go home, even if it takes decades. Uh, the South does not adopt that strategy uh, at the beginning of the war and, and only moves toward it slowly and, and fitfully and never completely. Uh, is this, are they also trying to establish that they are a legitimate civilization? Very much so, um, almost entirely. Um, this is not... Um, um, an insurrectionary movement in the most literal sense of the term. Uh, quite the opposite, what the Confederates are doing, they, they are trying to establish themselves as the newest member of the Western community of nations. Well, how do you do that? You establish a government, you establish a legitimate military, you establish a legal system, um, and you abide by the prevailing rules, not only of war, but of the international community at large. Um, would the Confederate um, experiment have, have worked? Would it have succeeded with uh, an all-out informal insurrection? Um, maybe. Um, but that was that was that was off the table. Um, and and the Confederate government always had a very tense, unhappy, and awkward relationship with um, the guerrilla war that um, spiraled along the margins and the interior of of the war for for those four years. Let me change gears for a moment here as we're talking about the war. You have a section where you discuss uh, the fact that the war isn't, decided on the battlefield, at least in the sense that Waterloo decides the the end of Napoleon's bid for power in 1815, uh, that there's no decisive battle. And there's been a lot of writing about that. Uh, what what Why no decisive battle in the Civil War, in your view? Yeah, well, I, I must confess that that my view um, is is adopted from those who are uh, much uh, more qualified than I on this. And I, I had the great privilege of reading so many of our friends and colleagues work to understand this. Um, I, I can give I can give one answer that really resonated with me um, in the in the work of um, Wayne Shubb. Um, mm -hmm. He he calls um the the search for uh, a decisive battle that you know on on the part of Waterloo um, near well impossible because both armies were so similar in their construction in their um, overwhelming uh, manning of private citizens common citizens volunteers um, in the similar manner of training 
and background of West Point officers, all of which he combines to call um, an equilibrium of competence, that the armies were so big, they were so largely inexperienced, that they kind of just checked each other out. And in the wake of a battle, armies would often um, remove themselves from their opponent, regroup, and try again. And so there was very little time or opportunity for uh, an offensive belligerent to capitalize uh, on its gains. And if you think about the great battles, even those that really do end up in explicit victories, I mean, Gettysburg is an explicit victory for the United States, but in the grand scheme of the war, I mean, it is hardly a turning point. Um, um, what, what, did it, what did it change fundamentally? What, what battles uh, did, I, I would say, is um, had a profound effect on the political realm, uh, both in the United States and the Confederacy. What the armies did on the battlefield, and incidentally, what they didn't do, led to political contingencies on the home front with which civilian authorities had to deal. Uh, we get emancipation as a policy almost entirely because of what happens or, again, doesn't happen uh, on the battlefield uh, in the great campaigns in Virginia in the spring and summer of 1862. The uh, well, In regard to the decisive battle question, I agree with your, your citation of, of Wayne's work and uh, I'm gratified to hear it because that is exactly what I argued uh, in in my book on the Army of the Ohio back in mm -hmm. uh, 23 years ago now, uh, and I, I think I regret not giving it a, a grand, more grandiose title uh, because that that's exact, almost exactly what I the case I made for the absence of decisive battle uh, for that particular army, but generalized to all civil war armies. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I read your your chapter, your, your section of your chapter there, I was nodding vigorously with oh, that good. and, and uh, <laughs> glad, glad to see uh, uh, that that you share that view. Uh, you mentioned emancipation, and no, no discussion of this is complete without talking about that issue, and I, we won't get to Reconstruction this evening, but that's a reason why listeners will want to buy and read a copy of this book. Uh, you use the term insurrection to describe the, the collapse of slavery, but there's no slave rebellion John Brown style or Nat Turner style. Uh, why do you call it an insurrection? Yeah, um, I, I had fun with that word, uh, mainly for the reason that you cite, is because um, there was not, uh, and, and I know that this is a, an, another another great debate uh, in grad seminars and in the literature at large, was mm -hmm. was the Civil War, uh, Stephen Hahn argues, uh, Stephanie McCurry argues, the, the Atlantic world's largest slave rebellion. I understand what they're saying. Um, mm -hmm. I, I titled that chapter Insurrection exactly for the reason you said is because there wasn't one um, in the literal meaning of the term. Both white citizens in the United States and the Confederacy at the outset of the war absolutely were convinced because of their own uh, racialist view of the world that this war could, if it, if it expands, if it escalates, descend into some racial cataclysm. Uh, the Confederates obviously believed that um, emancipation only confirmed that, in, at least in their minds. Mm -hmm. But the reason um, an insurrection, I believe, did not, or at least a, a literal uh, insurrection, did not manifest is because 
uh, black Americans themselves rejected it. Uh, instead, what did uh, black men from the outset petition uh, the Lincoln government to do? To serve within military institutions, to serve within the institutions of small r Republican life, to act as any citizen would at a time of a nation's um, crisis and danger. Um, and why? Why are they doing that? Um, they, in their own words, say it, that this is a, uh, a war in their mind to preserve um, the world's best hope for their own liberty and the liberty of their offspring. And so there is no reason in their mind uh, to descend into lawless chaos, uh, which in, in many ways would confirm the uh, gross prejudices of so many white people. Um, an insurrection is just off the table uh, for African-Americans. And, and that, ha in spite of the fact that we do see racialized violence, certainly in the last years of the war, Fort Pillow and the crater and so on, uh, on the part of white Confederates, but the the temptation to respond in kind uh, is not absent, uh, but, but responses in kind are not absent, but, but they don't become the dominant form. Uh, if the book ended there, there might be a, a sort of hopeful sense that uh, the the founder's vision not, has not only been rehabilitated but but purified of the 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 contamination and, and hypocrisy of slavery. But you then discuss Reconstruction at some length, uh, in which the Confederate vision you show doesn't go away. It does not go away. Um, but what I, what I try to do in the Reconstruction chapters is to show that by 1865, at least for the loyal citizens uh, of the United States, the great cause of the nation's discord from its founding through secession had been excised. With the removal of slavery, at least according to loyal citizens, the possibility of a fracturing republic was forever removed. But, as you said, the Confederate vision uh, of what the United States was and should be did not die um, in 1865, uh, which led to, of course, um, the great trials of Reconstruction, how to rehabilitate um, a demilitarized, anti-militaristic, decentralized government, um, while also according with the, the new demands of a new racial world. Um, it, it, it's an almost impossible balance, and unfortunately, we don't have time to discuss how it works out. But again, that's a motivation, listeners, for you to read A Contest of Civilizations, Exposing the Crisis of American Exceptionalism in the Civil War Era. That's a book we've been talking about tonight with its author, Andrew F. Lang. Andy, thank you so much for joining me on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you, Jerry. It's my uh, privilege. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.